This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Have you looked at your cell phone bill lately? Canadians pay some of the highest cellular prices in the world, and one reason is the concentration of huge players. And that club of media megaliths is set to get smaller with Rogers' $26 billion takeover of Shaw Communications. Now, it was approved at one level of approval by the CRTC, and Rogers has moved to find buyers for Freedom Mobile, currently owned by Shaw, because they expect that to be a condition for getting another rung of the regulatory approval. Well, when the Competition Bureau looked at who Rogers planned to sell to, they ruled that it wasn't good enough, that it would hurt consumers and lead to higher prices and poorer service. Freedom Mobile is lower priced than the others, and Shaw, according to the Competition Bureau, has, quote, consistently challenged the big three telecom companies, Roger B- Rogers, Bell, and TELUS, which have about 87% of Canadian subscribers. So where is this at? The Competition Bureau has filed an application to get an injunction to block Rogers' purchase of Shaw, at least until this case is heard. So what do you think? And just in general, what do you make of your phone bills and the fact that we pay such high prices and often these prices just seem to go up? And, you know, frankly, the way these things are bundled and everything, it's really hard to tell how much you're paying and for what. The numbers, 416 Three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty and now I am joined by Ellen Roseman, a consumer advocate and journalist, Ben Class, a senior research associate at the Canadian Media Concentration Research Project, and Matt Hatfield, campaigns director for Open Media. Hello, everyone. Hi, Libby. How's it going? Uh, it's going well. It's it's going great, and we're seeing we're seeing at least an attempt to help out consumers. Ellen Roseman, how do you see this? It is true that Canadians have always uh, lagged the rest of the developed world in terms of our um, telecom pricing and telecom service because we have these three national carriers and. Uh, uh, two of them, at least in Ontario, are integrated with internet and TV, and they use telecom, uh, the, the wireless pricing as a way to try and, you know, compete in other areas as well. So they get us kind of a stranglehold on their customers, and it's hard for customers to leave. So way back in the Harper days, he recognized that we needed a fourth carrier that would be equal in size, and that could help alleviate some of these concerns, and tried really hard to bring an American company up here. Verizon was the one that came really close, and then just felt that the Canadian market was too small and probably uh, more difficult for them because of the need to uh, spread geographically and use two languages and all that kind of thing. So then um, Anthony Lacavera brought in Windmobile in 2008, which was uh, he was in the uh, phone business, but not in wireless. But he did a heck of a job trying to build it up, had trouble getting capital in Canada, so went to an Egyptian um, national who was helping him with the financing. And that uh, ended up in court, and he had to leave that and find someone else. And the financing never happened, and he had to sell Win Mobile to Freedom Mobile. So when he sold it about five or six years ago, it had a little over a million subscribers. Now it has two million subscribers. It's getting to that point where it's pretty strong. But um, what is Rogers going to do with it? Lacavera would love to buy it back. He's all over the place saying that he wants to be 90 and own that company again. He's really sorry that he had to give it up in the first place. And apparently Rogers has not even met with him. And we're not sure even if he would be allowed to take it over under the terms of the Competition Bureau. But that's something. 
And in the meantime, uh, the Competition Bureau says when it's trying to block the deal that since it's been announced a year ago, uh, Freedom Mobile has started kind of slacking off in terms of its innovation, in terms of its pricing. It's not really the same kind of customer service that it used to do. And that's a shame because their customers shouldn't be suffering because this deal is dragging on. Well, uh, I don't know if it's because the deal is dragging on or because they're going to have new masters. Matt, what's your view? Well, I think it's really great to see the Competition Bureau taking this stance. Um, we were concerned that they were going to approve the deal uh, with Freedom being spun off. And uh, unfortunately, the Competition Bureau has quite a limited mandate in Canada compared to other countries. Um, they're not able to do sort of proactive market studies and really go in and try to make improvements in competition um, on their own accord. They can only look at these deals and they can only make decisions within a certain framework. So. It's great to see that they are attempting to block the deal and that they recognize that spinning off freedom won't fix the job. The trouble with spinning off freedom is they they will not necessarily have the resources to compete effectively against Rogers, Bell, and uh, TELUS and really in, apply the same kind of competitive pressure that um, Freedom Mobile has to some degree uh, on the other competitors. So we're, we're glad to see this decision, but I think it's important to keep in mind that the best case scenario here is preserving the status quo we have which is not good enough. I mean, we look at our cell phone bills in Canada and we know we pay too much, you know, just go to another country and come back here and think about it. Ben Kloss, I mean, I was looking at some of the reactions from Bay Street and, you know, like they, some of them seem to be barely paying attention to this. It's like, we, we don't think this is going to work. This is, it's just the competition bureau. Like we, we're big business. We do what we want. Ben? Yeah, no, I'm here. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that uh, this has been uh, an unexpected development for uh, a lot of the people who watch this uh, type of um, issue, myself included. And uh, the history of these types of transactions has been, uh, you know, that they generally go forward with uh, divestment or some sort of conditions attached. Um, but when, you know, the Competition Bureau, when it's looked at um, issues in telecom in the past, sometimes they've issued fines. Um, but I don't believe they've gone so far as to sort of tackle a structural issue at a scale uh, like we're seeing right now. Um, so I think, you know, the business business community was largely, uh, I think, expecting this deal to go through uh, with the wireless division being sold to a competitor. But, uh, you know, the Competition Bureau, um, I think, makes a very strong case uh, that that just wouldn't work, you know, and to spin off uh, this uh, you know, wireless competitor that I think in the past couple of years has really started to accelerate the improvements, and it's at the root of the improvements we've seen in this market in Ontario, BC, and Alberta. If the Competition Bureau were to allow them um, to spin off uh, at this point, uh, it would really be like setting this policy that Ellen pointed out has been sort of developed over the past decade and more. Uh, it would be just sort of setting us back to square one. And to me, that's not how good public policy is made. And I, I think the Competition Bureau deserves to be applauded for standing on principle here. Mm-hmm. Let me give the numbers out again, people. I, I really would like to hear from you about, <clears throat> excuse me, your cell phone bills. And, uh, you know, everything is costing more these days. And having a cell phone is no longer a frill. It is something you really need. I, I can't imagine getting along without one. I know some people do, but uh, it is increasingly a necessity. So the number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. What do you think of your cell phone bills? And what do you think that the Competition Bureau, at least for the moment, is trying to block this sale that would concentrate uh, this business even further by blocking the merger of Rogers and Shaw? And Ellen, so our Competition Bureau doesn't have a lot of teeth. Uh, you know, uh, what do you think of the kind of dismissive reaction we have seen to this so far? I think that, uh, as as one of your speakers alluded to, 
the, the competition will probably force Rogers to divest more than just Freedom Mobile, that it might become less of a player in terms of uh, either the internet or the television business, uh, cable TV distribution and other things that it's doing. Uh, that happened with Bell a number of years ago when it was taking over uh, a company in Quebec. It had to keep promising more divestment. So not, you know, you merge in order to get the assets, but then in order to have that merger approved, you have to divest a lot of those assets that you were hoping to get. But that will allow some smaller players to come in or some of the more medium-sized players to add it to their roster so that they can become bigger and compete with the very large companies. Uh, so this will last a while. And uh, hopefully by the end of it, we won't see like Rogers being too bloated and uh, and shutting out everyone else. And also when it comes to selling Freedom Mobile, Rogers should have some kind of a transparent, open process and not just approach the suitors that it likes and try and make a deal, but allow everyone to compete on an a, uh, uh, equal basis. Well, yeah, they're, they, they obviously are interested in people uh, who won't give them much competition trouble, right? That's right, and who maybe will share their networks. So that's where they can make money from that new competitor. Okay, let's take a call from Bill in Toronto. Hi, Bill. Hi, Libby. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, so they opened up the landline service for competition. I don't know what it was, like 15 years ago? And AT&T and Sprint and all the big players from the States came in. There were Canadian startups, and it was an epic failure. They all invested tons of money. They were here for a few years, and they, they basically died out. So I wonder given the nature of the huge country we've got, where you have to join, go through vast swaths of land where they're making zero money and they've got to maintain lines and services, uh, if you can actually even be competitive in Canada, if it's going to attract anybody else to want to come in and do it. Um, well, um, Ellen was telling us about that before. I, I'll, I'll throw that to our guest, Bill. Thanks for your call. Uh, Matt, do you have a, a, a theory about that? Yeah, I mean, a few comments. Um, it's true that we're a very big country, but uh, it's also true that the vast majority of people are in Canada are in a very small area. So building out to the rural portions of Canada is a specific problem. Um, it's not something the big three have proved willing to do effectively either. And the government uh, provides additional funding through the Universal Broadband Fund to try to get service um, on the wireline side out there. Um, there may be an argument for, for more investment there on, on wireless as well. But in terms of the area that you know smaller competitors would actually be servicing, um, it is actually quite a small uh, strip of land, um, mostly along the U.S. border, that uh, the majority of people and the majority of service would be within. Um, and I would also add that one of the reasons uh, we have recommended um, making it easier for service-based competitors, that is, um, providers that uh, buy access to physical infrastructure and then resell to Canadians, that's something we think is helpful um, because it doesn't produce sort of this uh, expensive gold rush of trying to build out physical infrastructure um, and instead uh, provides a more sustainable form of competition where if some companies come in and leave, uh, other companies can come in after them fairly easily and you don't get a sort of a lockout effect. Is part of the problem rules regarding foreign ownership, Ben? Uh, no, actually, the rules for foreign ownership were relaxed in 2014 in Canada. And so, um, you know, essentially the only prohibition against foreign ownership in Canadian telecoms, um, the law prevents someone from just coming in and buying Bell Rogers or TELUS, uh, the largest companies, any company that has over 10% of the national revenue in tele the telecom market can't just be bought out by a foreign company. And you can see that someone doing that wouldn't necessarily increase the level of competition. It would just be replacing one large national company with a different large foreign company that would potentially be less uh, susceptible to, uh, you know, government regulation in a small country like Canada. But there has been, uh, you know, there, the most prominent current example of foreign competition coming in is uh, Elon Musk's Starlink service, uh, which I think has been, uh, you know, a big relief to a lot of people in rural areas of the country that, as Matt pointed out, have historically been ignored by... Uh, the Canadian incumbents who would prefer to focus on the more lucrative urban areas. And I'll just add in response to the um, caller's uh, point that, um, you know, the, this industry, uh, unlike long distance where the margins are razor thin, uh, the wireless industry is tremendously profitable, and that's true for big companies like Bell as well as for the newer competitors like Rogers or uh, Shaw, I'm sorry. 
And I think an example, uh, you know, this is a story that we often hear that Canada's big country and it's hard to make go of it. And while it's undoubtedly hard to run a complex technology business like mobile wireless telecommunications, we have some examples of uh, companies across the country like Quebecor in um, Quebec and Eastlink in the Maritime Provinces, as well as Saskatel in uh, Saskatchewan that, uh, you know, aren't giant behemoths like Bell, Rogers, and Telus, but that nevertheless have uh, and continue to have great success finding their competitive niche in this market. So I think that um, there's a good, you know, in in this particular case, what we're seeing is the owners of Shaw looking to cash out, uh, you know, to take a big payday. And, uh, you know, this deal is certainly good uh, for their bank accounts, but uh, it isn't something that's going to be good for consumers. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Let's take a call from Walter in Hamilton. Hello, Walter. Oh, hello. Thank you very much. Um, as I recall, in the last uh, federal election, Prime Minister Trudeau was promising to put in a ceiling on the cost of uh, cell phone for that same reason. It was mentioned here a little earlier that it's turning into more of a necessity than a frill. And he hasn't carried that in two past elections. When he ran in the first election way back, uh, he promised the same thing. He didn't deliver. Then he called a snap election and promised the same thing after that. And he still didn't deliver. So as far as I'm concerned, Trudeau has to follow his word and put a ceiling on how uh, much a company can charge the monthly services for cell phones. And uh, uh, not only that, he has a control over it because he controls the CRTC and the CRTC can put their foot down and say, okay, this is it. So, you okay. don't charge any more than, than so much a month, let's say 20 bucks a month, for example. You charge more than that, we'll revoke your license, and you won't be able to... to okay, you're, you're getting... Walter, thank you very much for reminding us about that promise. Uh, the CRTC is apparently independent. He doesn't control the CRTC, but let's get to that promise. Thank you very much for reminding us. Uh, wasn't it, um, Ellen, do you remember, was the promise, uh, the number 25% is tweaking uh, it, at the back of my memory. Do you remember what the promise was exactly? Sorry, I don't. Uh, I didn't really think that it was going to happen. Okay, you know, well, that's a whole different story. Back in 2019, uh, um, Trudeau uh, promised that he'd establish a separate independent consumer watchdog to look after these federally regulated industries and publicize when they were doing things that weren't in the consumer's interest. Sounded like a great promise, but it never even got to the legislation stage. Uh, yeah, um We will uh, try to look that up. Aha, yes, Steve is going to check what that promise was. Uh, It would be uh, under the litany of broken promises, I guess, Matt. Is that, uh, oh, wait, wait, we have the answer. Thank you, Steve. Uh, I was right about the 25%. They promised to lower wireless prices by 25%. Uh, A move, the party said, would save Canadians 2,000 bucks. yeah, that number, at least I did have a vague recollection. So, Matt, is is that the way to go, to have government regulation of the prices? Uh, not in this way. Um, so that 25% target was uh, specific to 2 to 6 gig mobile plans. Uh, they're plans that most Canadians don't have. They're not actually available from the major providers in Canada for the most part. They're only available, available on their smaller brands. Um, and so technically, I think the government's uh, based on their own counting, met that promise. Um, <laughs> okay. But did it actually save Canadians money? No, because it wasn't the plans people actually have. Hmm. Uh, good good point. Um, so the, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing. <laughs> I'm sorry I don't have a, a, a razor-sharp memory on all this stuff, but, you know, uh, nice, nice go, Mr. Trudeau. Uh, Libby, if I could yes. add um, that there has actually been some uh, improvement in recent years in the price of mobile service. And while I think that, uh, you know, there's different ways of calculating the price, uh, I've conducted a number of studies in recent years on this, and there has been substantial improvement both in terms of what the lowest price available in the market is as well as what you get for what you pay. But the reason for it isn't that the Trudeau government asks nicely of the companies to lower their prices. The reason is that we have these competitors like Shaw, Shaw's Freedom Mobile brand that are starting to take hold. 
And that's why the Competition Bureau's action is so important today, because they're seeking to make sure that that pressure that's holding the, the companies to account in the marketplace and not just in the boardrooms of the regulator, uh, you know, that those companies and the competitive pressure they bring continues to bring improvements to Canadians' vital services. Uh, and Libby, I want to point out that the system as it is now relies on the customer to negotiate. So you can't stay with your same supplier that you've had for 10 or 20 years because they're going to treat you badly. They're going to offer all kinds of discounts and special deals to new customers, and they'll take you for granted. And it used to be that you could shop around, get the best deal, go back to your supplier, tell them you want to stay with them, but they have to match. And often they did. But what I'm hearing now from professional negotiators who work for companies trying to get the best deals is that they're not even negotiating anymore, so you have to switch and then switch back later once the contract runs out because they're making it really hard for you to stay with your supplier and get the deals elsewhere. So I know it's hard to switch and it could be a pain and maybe you're not getting the same thing and comparison shopping can be impossible because of all the ways that they have little, you know, ticks in their service that change what you think you're getting. Um, another thing I want to point out is if you buy a cell phone along with a plan, you have a two-year contract and you pay off the cost of the phone with what they call a tab over the two-year period. So once you finish paying it off, I think a lot of people assume that, okay, now my bill's going to go down. But it doesn't. The tab is still there, and it's up to you to go back to the company and say, I want you to lower the amount because I'm staying with you, and I have, I've paid off the phone, so I should be getting a lower monthly rate. So that's another thing that's just really anti-consumer, and it's putting the onus on consumers to be smart call the companies on a regular basis, shop around, and oh, try and get the best deal for themselves. It's not unless easy. Unless the government does better to protect them. It is not easy to call those companies. Uh, yeah, you're on, on hold for a long time, and then you get disconnected. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I want to follow up on what you were just telling me, because I was about to give possibly some misinformation, because the last time I dealt with this, all you had to do, like each of the big ones had a retention division. And if you called and said, I'm going to get rid of your service, they would transfer you to the retention division, which would offer you a better deal. You're saying that that's no longer the case. Yes, they're making it hard. I've heard that at Rogers, uh, they have the office of the president, which is the escalated complaints division. (laughs) And now a lot of people are being told, oh, the office of the president doesn't even exist anymore. Rogers used to have an ombudsman. They got rid of that quite quietly. Um, so they're less interested in retaining the old customers for them, especially since they're traded on a stock market and they have to report quarterly on the new customers they're getting. That's what they want. They want new customers. They're not as interested in satisfying the old customers. Wow. Uh, you know, there there are a couple of people waiting who want to tell us customer service stories. If that's a little bit not what we're talking about, because I'm not, you know, there are uh, still customer service horrific stories, I think, in every company. Ellen, am I right? Yes, yes. You can read the Commissioner for Complaints for Telecommunication Services, CCTS, They were putting out annual reports listing the companies and the number of complaints they were getting. For a while there, they were putting them out twice a year because they were getting so many complaints. But they have found in the last little while that the complaints have leveled off, so they're they're back to annual service again. Uh, Oh, maybe the complaints have leveled off because it takes too long to get through. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) And and, uh, I I always said, okay... uh, Rogers, if there's an issue, you you will at least get somebody local, more or less. But with Bell, I remember, you know, there'd be some problem with your line and you'd, you'd get somebody in India telling you, no, it's your fault. So how much of that is outsourced now? Um, I haven't checked it lately. I think certainly uh, Rogers does outsource too, So, but, but mostly stays in Canada. Uh, other companies do it in other uh, overseas countries. Um, but I don't think we should focus on where they are. We should focus on how much training they have and how well equipped they are to answer people's questions. And uh, many people just find it frustrating, especially when they're promised a call back and they don't get it and they're calling again and again and again. And for many people, they have to call during the day when they're you know, at work and uh, 
it's just not the easiest thing in the world. Communicating with a telecommunications company is not easy. <laughs> I know. It's, uh, it's something, uh, Matt Hatfield, should... I mean, the, the, the competition tribunal cited mostly price. They did talk a little bit about service, though. Yeah, well, you know, just, just to build on, on what Ellen was saying, um, I would just point out to people, anytime you get the kind of really unpleasant runaround uh, customer service that we, we almost all get from telcos on the regular, it kind of suggests there's a competition problem, right? So if we had enough competition in Canada, there'd be more incentive for companies to compete on service and actually try to attract people by promising, we will not treat you this way. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the, the status quo we have. And uh, this decision, uh, as I said earlier, it's, it's an opportunity to not make it worse. Uh, <laughs> so we, we hope that they do succeed on this and Rogers and Shaw don't uh, end up um, becoming one company. They are each other's primary competitors, certainly in the West. Um, and so... If they do um, move through with this decision, they'll have that much less incentive to actually offer people a fair deal. Ben Klaas, uh, do you have any ideas about what the likelihood of this succeeding is? I, yeah, I mean, I think that the Competition Bureau, uh, I've been reviewing uh, reviewing their submission, and, uh, you know, I think it's highly unlikely that anyone's been to the end. They've submitted what looks to me to be about 10,000 pages uh, of evidence in support of their application. So um, I think from what what I've been able to uh, parse so far, it looks like a very serious case that they're able to make. Uh, and I think that the case against allowing further concentration in this market is clear. The prices will go up. Uh, the available options will decrease. Uh, you know, um, prior to Shaw's enter, entry of the market, um, Bell, Rogers, and Telus had a pretty tight control on the ability to sort of raise the prices as they see fit. You know, they, they're able to coordinate with each other as the Competition Bureau, um, as the Competition Bureau points out in its application. Uh, you know, I think uh, it's it's a, I think it's the right decision. Uh, what they're asking, which is an outright rejection of the merger, uh, the Competition Bureau at this point um, is pointing out that just spinning the company off, uh, you know, won't it'll wind up withering on the vine if that happens. It won't be able to compete with an integrated company like Bell or like Rogers. Uh, so, I mean, I think I, I'm hopeful that their case is strong and because I think they've taken the right position and they've supported it very well. But, uh, you know, it's it's going to be going in front of a tribunal, and Rogers and Shaw, I think, will vociferously protect their position. Um, they will likely try and sweeten the deal. And so uh, we'll have to wait and see uh, what sort of counterproposal they come up with and how the tribunal uh, uh, parses that out. I know Rogers is expected to make its reply, and Shaw will be expected to make their reply within 45 days of the Competition Bureau's application, so a month and a half. But from there, the Competition Bureau was clear that uh, there will be no set timeline. So it sounds to me like they're going to be trying to do this right. Okay. Well, uh, we will see, and we will keep following this because it is an important issue for consumers. That's all the time we have for this segment. Thank you, Ben Kloss, Ellen Roseman, and Matt Hatfield. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye, Libby. We're taking a break, and when we come back, a much more pleasant conversation. Did you know that it is Eat What You Want Day? It's the day when you are encouraged to throw off your discipline, ice cream for breakfast, uh, go off your diet, eat that burger or whatever it is that you desire. And it comes a day after we heard that we're getting... Michelin guided restaurants. Some of them will be getting stars. So uh, it's a good food day. We'll be back with that. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's lunchtime, and we have a couple of food related stories. It's Eat What You Want Day. The idea is to give us permission to eat what we want, to let go of diets and discipline and restraint for one day. So is that a good idea? Uh, I'd like to hear from you. Also, uh, what are you going to eat? 
Uh, and yesterday, we learned that the Michelin Guide is coming to Toronto. And aside from the fact that we Torontonians and Canadians still always just feel so validated when we're put on a map of any kind, this is great news for restaurants and tourism in general as the sectors try to recover. But, you know, not everyone is thrilled. Uh, are you worried that maybe your favorite restaurant will get even more expensive? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'd like to hear what you're planning to eat, what you think about the Michelin thing. And uh, right now, I would like to welcome Frank Parhisgar, who is the chef and owner of FK. And in my opinion, that is a restaurant that would be in the running for one of those stars. And Rose Reisman, a nutritionist, author, and owner of Rose Reisman Catering. Hello and welcome. Hello, Libby. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Hi, Libby. I'm... Thank you for your kind words. That's very inspiring. Okay. Well, uh, th- thank you for your great food. Frank, are you having anything particular for Eat What You Want Day, or do you get to eat what you want every day? Uh, pretty much eat what you want every day, but for today, I'm doing one of those things which is very sacrilegious to a lot of people, but I think it's a great combination. I usually have like sushi with kimchi as opposed to the uh, pickled ginger that it comes with. <laughs> and it's uh, most Japanese chefs they freak out on that, but I think it's so <laughs> awesome together. Anyway, that's the side of Okay, Rose, are you are you going to have anything uh, sinful uh, um, on Eat What You Want Day? You know, every day I have something that'll be a little sinful. I think that's my way of balance. But you know, this whole do it all on one day. Whoa, I I don't know. I think it's a bit much. And once a year, not enough. <laughs> once a year, not enough. enough. And. Uh, I'd like to welcome also Chef Carl Heinrich. He's the chef and owner of Richmond Station. And I think that's another restaurant, which is probably in the running for one of those Michelin stars. Hi, Chef Carl. Hi, nice to, nice to be here. Thanks. Uh, you're Hi, welcome. Are, are you uh, going to have anything in particular for Eat What You Want Day? Oh, geez. I eat what I want every day. <laughs> so you do lucky I. men. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> so do I. But I usually like healthy food. Um, so, Rose, is this a good idea to have a day where you let loose? You know what? I, I think saying, okay, one day out of 365 days a year you can let loose is not a great idea. Because two things. I mean, are we all going to go nuts today and eat everything we, we want? I mean, it could be junk food. Maybe it's a five-star meal. Maybe it's comfort food. You should be doing that no matter what you want at least once a week. So once a year, I can't wait another 364 days until I can do this again. So I think it may put people into the the phase of saying, okay, I'm just going to go all out today. And they're going to feel really lousy tomorrow morning, Libby. Uh, yeah, that that would be my worry. Feeling yeah. lousy, uh, yeah. not so much uh, packing on the pounds from one day. Exactly. Exactly. Let, let's turn to this whole issue of the Michelin star. So let's begin with Frank. What's your reaction that it's coming to Toronto? Well, this is, I think, great uh, great news for our industry. It's uh, really exciting, but at the same time, there's a lot of uh, preparation and a bit of a education that requires behind the scenes. Uh, for example, for us, Michelin, having trained and prepped in some of those Michelin stars in my career before we opened our own restaurant. Uh, for one thing, it's who's inspecting it? Is it going to be a local inspector or is it a foreign inspector? How much is the application cost? And already we already have a little bit of trouble with shortage of staff and cost of living has gone higher and ingredients have gone higher. So I'm not really sure how many restaurants can afford to go for their stars, but the ones that do... I'm, I'm all for it. I think it's such an exciting news, not just for our food industry as well, but tourism itself and other parts of Ontario, our wine regions, our incredible ingredients that we have across this province in this country. Oh, well, you've just given me information that I did not know that you actually have to apply to be rated. 
Oh, absolutely. There's a process that goes involved. It's very similar to, say, their competitor, uh, not competitor, but similar in their brands, if you want to say, like Rally Chateau. For example, if you wanted to go for Rally Chateau, you would an application, and depending on the establishment that you are, let's say if you're a restaurant in a hotel, that might be a forty, fifty thousand dollars application. But a restaurant like ours would be close to twenty thousand dollars for that application. And it's a process that they'll go through. They'll it's a very costly application, and they'll go through the process of coming to your restaurant unidentified, a multitude of times. They pay that for themselves, and they kind of gauge and assess your whole restaurant from top to bottom. It's not just food. But it's a service um, philosophy, your personality, what it is that you're trying to intend through uh, your restaurant, what message, what is your voice, what is your identity. And at the end of the day, they'll give you a report. Um, for example, I know a couple of places who are incredible chefs and great restaurants, but unfortunately, their location happens to be like across a 7-Eleven and uh, <laughs> another view. And in that report, it, it, it states, which is like, unfortunately, you may not be qualified for Rally Chateau because you're kind of in a very weird location. Um, so Michelin is very much would be in that standard as well, you know, the, the details of the quality of your plates and chinaware and things of that nature. So there's a process that's involved and uh, coming out of the pandemic. Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult challenge, but one uh, that I think the city would be embracing for. Yeah, well, the city is clearly embracing it. Uh, Carl Heinrich, I was listening to a reaction from a very well-respected food critic, Corey Mintz, and he was saying the only way to consistently put out that high quality of food and presentation is to abuse your staff. And I know that you make a point of treating your staff very well and paying them properly. Um, well, <laughs> listen, I think just on the whole Michelin topic, um, Franco, I think like you said there, there's no way that this doesn't make the dining scene, um, better. I don't, you know, for me, this, this levels up the dining scene quite a bit. Do I think that there's going to be any three-star Michelin restaurants in Toronto? Um, maybe <laughs> I, I, I've already done seeing that. Um, it depends on your deep, uh, on, on Corey Mintz's point there. This breeds abuse. Um, I mean, I read Corey's book, and I know Corey well, and uh, I, I'm, I'm going to have to respectfully disagree there. I think that we've come a long ways, and I think that certainly Michelin is going to push standards here, but employees being treated properly and, frankly, fairly and paid fairly is coming from employees, and it, it's, it's coming from customers now. Customers want to spend their money at restaurants that are treating their employees fairly and fairly, and, and employees want to work at restaurants that are treating their employees fairly. Um, so whether or not you're shooting for the stars, I, I don't think that's going to make a difference because uh, if you can't hire staff because you abuse them, then you're not going to get any stars. Hmm. The the other criticism I agree, yeah. that I heard about this uh, is that it kind of change i mean okay face it when you're in a fine dining restaurant most of the people in there are going to be well off or they're being taken there by somebody who is well off but uh some people said it, it sort of changes the nature of who the clients are and uh, sometimes you get a preponderance of tourists and they only ask for the dishes that were you know pointed out in the Michelin guide frank is that a an issue well, that's a bit of a misconception. I myself, and I'm sure I speak for Carl as well, we are, um, our industry is diners of fine dining itself. We ourselves are tourism that travels across the board and goes to California to three Michelin star restaurants and eats. We're not the wealthy. We're cooks and garmanger and front house waiters, but we're enthusiasts of food and hence, you know, um, for a person like myself, I've gone and invested into my business, and I've married into it. My wife, who runs our, our business, uh, so you know, we're we're this this notion of three mission star being only for the elitists and the the super rich and wealthy. That's not necessarily true. There are a lot of people um, in the city of Toronto who, as they call themselves, are foodies, and they're not wealthy. They just happen to have a great appetite and enthusiasm for food and wine and the culture that comes with it. Um, and they'll um, also use it as a special occasion. They'll spend that money on a special occasion. You're right. And Rose, and, and you're right about that. Yeah, the, 
you know, you, you can go crazy amount of money depending on what you're buying in terms of, um, you know, wines and things like that. But in terms of restaurants, they're not super crazy expensive. You know, mm-hmm. this notion that fine dining belongs to only elite is, is not true. Yeah, Rose, yeah. uh, does having this emphasis on fine dining, does that help or hurt with nutrition? Um, you know, you can really do very clean, fresh food in, in, in these restaurants, for sure. I mean, you know, we, we tend to see tons of, you know, fat and, and, you know, organ meats used as well. But I think that they work so well with making adjustments for you. And I think this is not a daily occurrence. So it's not like eat what you want. It, you're, you're doing it. You're not doing this more than once or twice a year. So I think on those nights, you have to know yourself and say, you know what, I, you know, I, 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 I'm, health is still, you know, apparent to me. I, I might want fish versus red meat, but I think you can make exceptions when you dine like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so, Carl, what would you, if if you would go for the star and get a star, what kind of a difference would it make to your business, do you think? Well, I, I for, for us, for our team here and for, for myself and for our management team particularly, I don't I don't think we're going to be shooting for any stars. I mean, if, if Michelin comes to town and says, Richmond Station, we love what you're doing, we want to reward you with a star, then, you know, we'll, we'll accept it happily, obviously. If we're not in the guide, I'm sure there'll be a number of our staff that are disappointed, but I, I'm not looking to invest any money to make our dining room better and our product more expensive so that we can get stars I think that would, um, you know, just to the, the previous point there, I think that would make our restaurant too expensive for a lot of our friends and a lot of our family. I mean, I've always wanted to have a restaurant that my mother could come and eat at any day of the week. And and I've been to those really beautiful, really expensive, incredibly fancy restaurants where I spend all the money that I have. And like <laughs> mm-hmm. you said, you do that maybe once in a lifetime or once right. in a year. Right. Um, but uh, that's not Richmond Station, and like I said, if, if we get if we get rewarded with a star or or even a nod, then then we happily accept it. Okay, we have to take a break, but everybody, please hang on. We will be back with more on this. We're talking about the Michelin Guide coming to Toronto. So, what do you think, people? If some of our restaurants get one or two or three Michelin stars, are you worried that it'll make them more expensive? Uh, do you think it's a good thing? And also, it is eat what you want day. What are you planning to have for lunch or uh, for your snack or for supper or all of the above? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And we'll be back after this. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are having a very pleasant conversation. It's about food. It is Eat What You Want Day. So we still would like to hear what are you going to eat today as you maybe let go of the usual discipline. The numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Yesterday, we heard the big announcement that the Michelin Guide is coming to Toronto, and that could be a boon for both tourism and certain restaurants, the restaurants that might get one or two or three stars. Now, there's a whole thing of culinary tourism, and a lot of people in our demographic, baby boomers, when they travel are looking to do a lot of fine dining, though not necessarily just Michelin star dining. It it can be really also hard to get into those restaurants that cost a fortune. So, uh, Carl Heinrich, how much do you think it would help if Toronto became a destination, because I don't think it really is now, just in terms of culinary travel in in general. Well, it's huge. I, I, I'm 
Uh, I think Toronto is more of a culinary destination than uh, some people would believe, but certainly I think a guide like Michelin coming to town uh, kind of puts that in writing. <laughs> it puts, puts the stamp on that, right? Um, I, I moved to Toronto 12 years ago because of the culinary scene here. In my opinion, it's the best uh, culinary destination in this country. Um, and especially if you get out of the downtown core, I think Frank, you'll agree with me there, but, uh, yeah, absolutely. uh, I, I, I really, really believe, and I really support in what we're doing here in Toronto, uh, from, in a, from a worldwide perspective. And I think specifically over the past, uh, five years or so, the restaurants, uh, the restaurant scene has only become more diverse. The restaurant scene has only become better. Um, there's certainly a, enough beautiful restaurants in Toronto. There are a lot of restaurants being opened up. Um, that take a lot of money to create. Um, so I, I, I would put Toronto up there with some of the best culinary destinations in North America. I mean, it's hard to compare around the world when you've got centuries of dining culture in places like Tokyo and Paris and, you know, Barcelona, for example. But I, we're getting there. And, and again, I, I think Michelin Guide will help cement that. I found what last time I was in Paris, I found the food highly overrated, but interesting. Uh, never, never mind. Uh, I, I think I was there in August when it was tourist season and, you know, we just didn't matter. But Frank, you're a neighborhood restaurant. So uh, is that a good thing in terms of a Michelin guide? If tourists are coming, are they going to go? I mean, it's not a far neighborhood, but it's a neighborhood. Actually, I just wanted to add one one thing to what Carl was saying. He's right. Uh, Toronto has always been a destination. We know of Toronto within the greater of Canada, what a great city it is, and uh, culture in terms of food and wine destination. And it's not just Toronto, but Montreal, Vancouver, you know, you name it. But internationally, no, we've, we've not been known. And, you know... In regards to where we are in in the neighborhood itself, would Michelin star um, make a difference to us? It's not us. It's the behind the scene that really matters. Uh, I'll give you a quick story. During the pandemic, uh, we had to shut down the restaurant until we got our takeout business going. And we do a lot of farm-to-tables, as Carl does. Over the years, you end up knowing local farmers, purveyor producers, Incredible people who have been doing some unbelievable cultural um, quality of food that we know of, but other parts of the world don't know about it. And so that's, that, that's what I think Michelin really helps, is to kind of stamp in what we already have known, which is Canada does have uh, an identity in its food, which is quality of its ingredients. But with Michelin Guide, it kind of... Um, validates it a little bit more that the quality of our ingredients is far more superior and it should be on that level, which is one, two, three Michelin. And uh, Rose, I mean, one of the big attractions are all different kinds of, eth- I'll call it ethnic food, but fru- mm-hmm. food from all around the world that that people with those backgrounds bring here. And, uh, you know, those restaurants are often really not fancy. Right, exactly. And I think that's what's so wonderful, though, about Toronto. So it'll be interesting when they, you know, how long the process will be to, to get these stars and, you know, how many restaurants will actually qualify for them. And the shame is that many of the not-such-fancy restaurants have phenomenal food. So I really hope that they will be considered, but I'm sure it's all part of ambiance and service and all of that included, right? So it would be interesting. I mean, and and maybe, you know, Frank or Carl, you could tell me how long does a process take from beginning to end? Well, they're apparently going to announce in the fall. I, I'm not talking about the these ethnic restaurants getting a star, right? right. I think that that perhaps the value is that there it's kind of a spillover effect that mm-hmm. once Toronto is in the guide, people will explore further than the yeah. Michelin stars. Yeah. yeah, I agree. It will. I mean, food does attract people, so it will start, mm-hmm. you know, attracting people from, I believe, all over the world once they, you know, come into Canada. Carl, um, is the tourist part of your business recovering? I, I believe it is. Uh, historically, we've been uh, a very busy seven-day-a-week lunch and dinner restaurant. We haven't 
since uh, since March 2020. We haven't reopened for lunch yet. We haven't seen the business come back in the downtown core, but I don't think that's too far away. But to answer your question about tourism, we've actually seen a good amount of tourism. And, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, the Blue Jays playing good baseball and the Leafs are in the playoffs and, and all that's pretty close to us. But I, there are... There are a lot of grants. There are a lot of subsidies still for businesses that are struggling, but there is a lot of uh, the, the same sort of cash going around for hospitality and for, for tourism specifically. There are, there are millions of dollars available for the tourism sector to get back on their feet here. So uh, I'm expecting a pretty busy summer for tourism, not just because the money is there to subsidize it, but also because people have been staying at home for two years and are looking to get out and spend that money that they couldn't for the past two years because they've been stuck at home. Right. So I, I think tourism is on its way back. Uh, it's not here quite yet. Hotels aren't packed quite yet, but I think that's going to happen come the end of July here. We're going to see a, a very good amount of tourism back, especially in downtown core. Frank, uh, uh, quickly, how much of your business is back to pre-pandemic? Uh, we're not fully back at all, but we are doing much better uh, than it was, obviously, first or second year of the pandemic. Uh, but we definitely, like Carl said, we start to see a, a slow trickling effect of um, not just tourism, but local tourism. People who are just traveling a little bit up north where we are um, just to kind of visit us and see us and things of that nature. So we're not fully back. We're, we're definitely with the patio opening and the weather turning, we are definitely seeing a little ray of sunshine at the end of this rainbow. And Rose, I'm going to give you the last word. It is that eat what you want day. We're also heading into the summer. People maybe want to tweak their diets a bit. Uh, What do you want to leave us with? So, you know what? Look, I I think you should always have a little splurge. If you really crave something, have it. It's not the end of the world. But just, you know, be careful of binging. That's why this eat what you want day. I I still love the 80-20-90-10 rule. Like 90-80% of the time, stay fresh, stay healthy, stay, you know, no package stuff. 10% enjoy, and that won't get you into too much trouble. It's really called mindful eating. Eat when you're hungry. Eat a mix of foods. Balance your protein, your grains, your fruits, and your vegetables. And that's really the secret formula to feeling good, having a good, healthy body weight, and enjoying a little bit of everything. Do not bash carbs. Don't bash all the foods that that you love. That's the worst way of going about this. Okay, good advice. And uh, looking forward to seeing what happens with our culinary scene. Thank you so much, Carl Heinrich. Thank you, Libby. Frank Farscar and Rose Reisman. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye now. Bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.